Thank you for that beautiful music, uh, Jim. I really appreciate that uh, the words to that song. Morning has broken on this Easter Sunday. Today, I wanted to try something that I've not done before, uh, knowing you, knowing that I don't need to point to the the flowers. I don't need to point to all the signs of spring. Uh, I don't need to point to all the reasons we celebrate Easter for our particular fellowship, because that that love is so abundant in you. I, I, what I'd like to try today is to um, see if we can remember together the significance of this day in such a way that we capture not just the excitement and the joy of seeing everything be created new, the, the spring that greets the earth this morning, but also the depth, the, the depth of, of what that means. And, and so that we remember not uh, not just uh, that this is Easter Sunday, but, but why we celebrate this Sunday in particular. There's a garden in our yard. Uh, Sajina is used to hearing me uh, look out in the in the snow covered uh, uh, region over where the, the, the flowers uh, have planted and say, do you see it? Do you do you see the the daffodils over there, Sajina? There's going to be himrocallis, and over here there's going to be anemones. And she'll laugh at my pronunciations and such. And he says, "I, I guess I see it." And uh, and I and I guess that's what I'd like to. It's the that we I call that garden the love garden. I planted it uh, so that Sajina would always be reminded every time she looks at it, at, uh, not just of the love that I feel for her, but also the love of God. And it's been part of that. Uh, of of that meaning part of of what is being said there there is that we have a shared history so that when we look up at that space we see a sanctuary here that God has provided and we remember the walk that we have walked, we remember the deliverance that God has provided and how we are each part of that deliverance. And so there's a depth to the songs that those flowers sing that, uh, that we can only understand retrospectively. And that's what I hope that we might achieve today is to dig down deeply and remember our story retrospectively so that when we see the daffodils blooming, we hear God saying to you, to each one of us, oh, how precious you are to me, how I love you. I hope that for each of us, all the world will be a love garden. And I think that's what Easter is about. So today, my hope is that each of us will receive this gift of, of Easter's eyes. And I want to begin by uh, answering a question that uh, Jim Falson incessantly asks during morning devotional. Uh, <laughs> he got really mad the other day when we were reading one of the scriptures that talked about Jesus's death. And he says, I, I just don't understand it. I, it makes me mad to think, why did Jesus have to die? And I love that about Jim, the way he asks the questions that some of us uh, either forget to ask or are afraid to ask. But that really is, I think, an essential question to our receiving the gift of Easter eyes so that we really understand the depth of this day. So thank you, Jim, uh, for um, your, your constant uh, bringing forth that question. And I think the answer, Jim, into all of us, it begins with 
God's plan and recognition, uh, recollection of God's plan. What did God desire? When we tell our story, I'm constantly reminding you that we, the church, have been given a mission. We, each of us, have been given a mission, and that is to live in fellowship with God and with each other in such a way that we bring all the world, that we draw through the way we live, we attract through the way we live, all the world into God's love. For God's plan is for all of us to reach the fullness of our humanity and to live in full communion, not just with God, but with each other and all all of God's creation. But there's a problem with God's plan. Now, we know uh, that God is good, and some, some of you will be uh, feeling, you know, responding to me when I say God is good all the time, because we know that's true. And we know that God wills these things, but we can see the evidence that there is something wrong with God's plan, because we see that we ourselves, who have been created in the image of God, are actually not bearing the image of God each and every moment of our lives. We are being less than human whenever we fail to act as the image of God that we are. And we see the evidence of that in the fact that we are not actually enjoying the fellowship that is God's plan. Uh, We see all sorts of uh, signs of it. Uh, We have created uh, what I have learned to call from my brother Solomon, hierarchies of human value. And it's uh, not something new that Solomon is... um, is uh, describing. It's something that Paul knew all about. And is, for example, his, it is the background of his, his epistle to the church at Corinth. All of his epistles to the church of, of Corinth deal with this broken communion that they have and how they themselves have created hierarchies of human value. He, he speaks the same thing to the church at, at uh, Colossae, uh, the Colossians. And, and some of the things that they were experiencing that Paul addresses in his epistles to them look like he's writing to us today. They, they had hyper-partisanship. Uh, they had developed the parties of Apollo, the parties of Peter, the poly- parties of Paul, the, the parties of the true Jesus Christ, and each of one of them fighting with each other uh, to, to determine the way that they would be uh, the people of God. Uh, extreme partisanship. We, he was addressing broken families, the families that look remarkably like our own, where there were issues of divorce, issues of sexual exploitation, issues of estrangement so deep that it seemed no healing was possible. Uh, This was a letter over 2,000 years ago and a letter written to us today describing things that we experienced. He dealt with the litigation, the constant litigation between Christians themselves, uh, uh, where they were fighting rather than working together to solve problems and, and all sorts of issues of idolatry. And we've addressed all kinds of examples of that. So I won't go through all the ways that we manifest our tendency toward idolatry. You can fill in the blank uh, because we've spoken about it so many times, but the classic ones in our time certainly have to do with our pursuit of uh, all all the ways that we pursue uh, power and uh, wealth and other things to, 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 to ensure our security. Um, And meanwhile, Paul looked around at each of his churches and say, look at this. And this was a real problem in the church at Rome and the church at Corinth uh, and at the church at Galatia. While the wealthy eat and form their hierarchies of human value, the poor go hungry and and are actually denied uh, access to the very means of grace. And so these were problems that he was addressing when he wrote his fabulous passage uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 that talks about the thing that we celebrate today. 
And it arises from what I'm going to today call the human condition. You've heard that phrase before, I'm sure. And the mere fact of the human condition is that we live, each of us, are, are, uh, are, we swim in waters uh, that uh, are, are filled with our deeply sinful ways, these big ways I've just described, and in and, and, and the small ways that we simply zing each other uh, in order to put ourselves on top of the other as in the position of power, in the position best uh, able to uh, get access to uh, the bread uh, that we fear will not be there when we go hungry. And so the, the, the human condition is simply an acknowledgement that we, each of us are sinners, that we each uh, contribute to our, our brokenness, our broken communities, our, the, our, uh, the, the, the loss of our capacity to relate to each other and to God's creation in the way that God planned. And we confess uh, each and every time we gather our, our sins of commission and our sins of omission, because we recognize that this is true. And what we do when we when we speak these confessions is we recognize that we have met the enemy and the enemy, the enemy is us. Uh, we are the problem with God's plan. We are the problem that needs to be fixed. And the beautiful part of our story is that God acted. That's why we celebrated it, that God acted to solve our problem. And I wanted to point out that God does that in two ways. And I wanted to bring us uh, to, to think of those two acts of salvation using the oldest piece of scripture uh, we find in the New Testament, which is called the Christ hymn. And some of you will uh, be able to sing it even, I know, because you've done it for me in the past. Uh, the Christ hymn appears in Philippians uh, chapter two. It's a, a little fragment of poetry. Uh, and, and, the, and the first act is it describes uh, what God did. Uh, let the same mind be in you. Let us be of one mind. Uh, and then the, in the description uh, happens of Christ's mind. And it says that mind that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos, of a servant, of a slave, being born in human likeness and being, being found in human form. This is the first act. He humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And so in God's first act of fixing the problem that is us, God descended, God kneeled before us and said, you are my cherished ones. I kneel before you in adoration and I wash your feet. I disrobe, I take the robe of, of my righteousness off and I make myself naked. I make myself vulnerable and I wash your feet. God's self empty and God became human and uh, and taught us and lived and walked with us and taught us how to respond to the things of the world that we encounter and ultimately submitted even to uh, the most hideous form of torture that uh, the Western world had created. Uh, he descended, and this is an important point for those of us who sometimes uh, don't value ourselves. He, he uh you know, some of us feel that uh, whatever it is that I'm talking about today, uh, you know, is addressed to um, to other people. Uh, but but you have a secret. There is something that you're hiding. There's something that is true about you that only you know, or perhaps just you and a few others know. And you have sunken so low that you are unworthy. 
you you tell yourself this story that that uh, that you have debased yourself such that you are unreachable by God's love by God's God's word, and uh, and the important thing we remember is that when God humbled Himself, God went so low; He went lower than we ourselves could ever go, and so there is never a place where God is not picking us up lifting us up, holding us, pushing us up out of the depths to which we've fallen. Uh, we are always there to hear his word and to be and to touch his word. And then, and then having done this, he accepted upon himself uh, the uh, cost, the consequences of our sinfulness, of the human condition, that, that public humiliation that was predicted by uh, the, the prophets and, and, uh, and torture. Uh, and death. And then the second act of salvation that the Christ hymn continues. And because of this, God, the father highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue should confess that who Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, the one we call the Messiah is the Lord and sits at the right hand of God, the father, the glory of God, the father. And so God's second act of salvation, what we see is God chose to deliver us from our human condition by descending and then causing the dramatic ascent of the son, exalting him, acclaiming the son as the only one whom we should uh, assault and call Lord. Um, and so as we ourselves today bow before our risen Lord, uh, we ourselves, as we're going to see, are, are being taught to similarly kneel and in servanthood uh, adore this one whom we are to acclaim. And as we practice doing that, we discover that our hearts are healed, our minds are healed. We learn to will what, will what the Father wills and choose in freedom what the, what the Father wishes we would choose. Uh, and, uh, and that is how God brings about our salvation. So the question that Jim would ask if he were here this morning is, okay, so why resurrection? And uh, I think that's the thing that we really need to ask ourselves. Why resurrection? Why is that so significant? Why is this God's means? And a um, couple of important points, you know, it's in order to be resurrected, you have to die first. And Jesus says that to us again and again, take up your cross. Uh, he reminds us that uh, in order to live, we must die. And what does that mean? Well, you know, the first point is it's a rather practical matter. Before you can be resurrected, you have to have the need of resurrection, which is to say you have to die first in order to, to be raised into eternal life. Uh, we must experience the execution of all that is in the way of that eternal life. And so the scriptures teach us that resurrection uh, is God's solution to the problem of death. And it's, of course, the thing we celebrate today, that there's only one who can solve that problem, who can solve the problem of death. And that is the one who gives us life, who animates us with God's breath, as the poetry that uh, Charlie read to us in our opening prayer said, uh, only the creator who breathes life into us uh, can conquer death. And that's what happens. And Paul talks about this. 
when he remembers the story of, of Adam and Eve, you know, Gen- from Genesis 3, uh, he talks about one man's trespass. If because of the one man's trespass, that's Adam, death exercised dominion. We, the consequences of 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 Adam's trespass is that that and and, and Adam re, is the representative man. Uh, then death exercised dominion through that one. Well, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, the one that we have come to know as the second Adam, Jesus, the Messiah. And so Paul, in developing his letter uh, to the Romans, uh, remembers Adam and Eve and, and, and talks about the first Adam into whom God breathed life and the second Adam into whom God breathed life for us all, having conquered death. And so uh, we we see that God chooses to solve the problem of death through resurrection. Now, I want to, to remind us that uh, uh, the, res- the resurrection does not abolish death for us. Uh, in fact, the very first point that we, <laughs> we remember from Good Friday is that Jesus, like us, expressed solidarity with us, even to the point of being forsaken on the cross, even to the point of experiencing death. And on Holy Saturday, we traditionally remember uh, the descent to the dead. So where um, uh, in in Chrysostom's uh, famous sermon on on Holy Saturday, he reminded us that Jesus loved us so much that he even preached to the dead so that all would experience the word of God calling us to new life. And yet we have to uh, be rather practical and say, okay, okay, we hear that, but we all still die. So death somehow remains a part of our story. So what role does death play? And so Paul continues that um, the death in, in, in his, his letter to Romans, uh, chapter five, he says that just as through one human being, sin came into the world and death came through sin. So death has come to everyone since every one of us has sinned. So death is part of God's solution to sin. Now, what are we to make of that? Death are the consequences of sin, we often say. And what is death? What is life? Life is uh, our capacity to live in relationship with God. So death is the cessation of that relationship with God. So, so what Paul is saying is that death is is not a punishment, but it's part of God's uh, creative act. Think about that. It's death is, is not something to be feared. Death is not something uh, that uh, is, 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 is external to uh, our lives, but death is an essential part of our lives. It's part of God's goodness. And one of the ways we get at that is to think about what does it mean for us to need a solution to sin? And one way to think of it, a professor of mine used the example of the Ebola virus, and I, uh, I, I think that we might think of a more recent virus and, 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 and having experienced some of those same consequences. But when the Ebola virus takes over a community, they've learned the only way that they can um, uh, survive as a community is, is simply to let the virus play out its to its conclusion. And they know that that what has to happen is we've just experienced uh, with with coronavirus is that that those who have been affected have to be isolated 
And uh, when they are um, on death's bed, we have the tragedy of having to watch them die from afar, not being able to be with them so that we ourselves are not affected. And then they have to be buried or cremated so that the infection is, con- infection is contained. And, and, uh, and so in, in, the, in, in dealing with the Ebola virus, that's what we've done. And the, and the, and the metaphor that my professor made was, is that that's how God has chosen to respond with to our sin. Uh, if we carry that, that virus of sin, it cannot be allowed to live in death indefinitely. So there's a strategy of containment. And then there's a strategy of providing a period at the end of the sentence so that our sin does not continue indefinitely. Now, one of the things that we Americans particularly need to remember on this Easter Sunday is that we are not exceptional by any stretch of the imagination, though we like to say that we are. Uh, I was having a, gr- a wonderful conversation at the dinner table the other day with, with uh, Sunadi and Sadir, and we were talking about our desire to visit with their cousin, uh, the Holocaust Museum down here near D- in, uh, in D.C. And, um, and one of the things that Sajina and I were doing was trying to help them see that the Holocaust was not simply a story about humans that live in Germany and or Europe, but it's our story, too. So we we made the point that we Americans, too, have our own Holocaust, that in order for us to pursue our manifest destiny, we had to wipe out the Native Americans who who occupied the Ohio River Valley and the Mississippi River Valley, and that we created what's known as the Trail of Tears. And so we remembered those stories, and we remembered how apartheid, we talked about apartheid in Africa, uh, in South Africa, and how uh, the, the, the folks who did what they did in South Africa. We talked about, you know, Nelson Mandela and all of those things. And we celebrated those, those uh, him and, and, and others who, who worked with him to liberate South Africa from apartheid. But then we remembered that the South Africans, the Afrikaners who implemented apartheid, used our training manual, the Jim Crow manual, the, the rules and laws that we first created here. They simply patterned what they did after us. Um, we talked about what it means to enslave people, and that's significant. We remember that when we we talk about the fact that that the, the Christ humbled himself and become like a slave for us. So we have in America a real problem with sin, and uh, and, and part of it I wanted to suggest to you is that we Christians have domesticated the gospel, a, a, a gospel that uh, uh, that calls us powerfully to a new way of life. And we've simply reduced the way we tell that story to something that doesn't condemn our sin. We say, Jesus loves me, this I know. And then we add to that uh, something that, well, all I need to know, I don't need to listen to the preacher. I don't need to listen to scripture. I don't need to know the story of the Bible because all I need to know is the golden rule. And I learned that in kindergarten. So if I know that Jesus loves me and I know that I just need to treat everybody the way I want to be treated, uh, then I'm good, uh, and so we reduce it to, to you know to, to that, and then we and then we add to that the capacity to choose who we're going to see as our neighbor and choose uh, those folks who will say, well, they're not uh, uh, my neighbors, they're they uh, they are not my uh, neighbors that I am to keep, uh, and and so we dilute our Christianity here in America, and that's what allows us to have the problems we're struggling with now. And I just wanted to mention too that we've talked about an awful lot uh, yesterday, uh, not yesterday, but this week. I had had a conversation with a a, a, a buddy of mine 
uh, who's been struggling uh, as, as, as he and I've spoken about racism. And one of the things that I see again and again is this response of, of my fellow white Christians uh, who, who, who are saying that uh, these acts by which we are trying to remedy our racial structures, our racist structures are an attack on whites. And so therefore our racism themselves. And so it's a, it's a complete uh, turning upside down of, of the good in, in order to sustain the bad. Uh, and then it, and we, we also see is uh, when we talk about means and, and, and say as Americans that we need to learn better how to share our bread, uh, we respond to that and deny that possibility by, 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 by naming that, uh, that commitment to bread sharing with each other as, as the threat of socialism and, and naming it as a denial and a suppression of my freedom if you cause me to share bread with my neighbor or the one that you want to be my neighbor. And where does this all come about? Well, it comes from the fact that we have unresurrected minds. We live east of Eden after chapter three of Genesis. And so as that story tells us, we have this, this, these hearts and minds that are prone to, to, to lust after the things that our neighbors have and to create these enclaves, these hierarchies of human value that then justify uh, these ways of living that are not at all fellowship that are in fact broken communion. And Paul goes on to say, that's not all we have. We uh, are created in the image of God and are called to uh, work alongside God creatively by creating structures of good. But so often we create structures of evil and the powers and the principalities enter into these things and they draw us further into temptation. So not only do we have within us this divided mind, but we have these uh, powers and principalities that preceded our creation that are part of the created order that but yet tempt us constantly towards evil. And so there needs to be a solution to that. And what is that solution? Well, what we remember today is that solution is that death is God's judgment, God's naming of our sin. It's God's victory over our sin, God's decision never to give our sin an ongoing future because sin, our sinful ways, our sinful life is unworthy of life. It's not, it has no place in a relationship of full communion. And so God banishes it from our eternal life by giving it death. Uh, and how does it do this? Well, one of the things that God does, uh, as Isaiah talks about, you know, it allows it to wither like the grass, or as it talks about in, the scripture talks about in John 15, uh, that God allows our fruitless branches to be cut off from the vine and to bear the uh, the consequences of those branches that are cut off from the vine, not having the vital sap that comes from God, they wither and they are no more and they're simply uh, annihilated. And then uh, if you if that is a struggle for you to, to wrap your heads around, since we don't live in that agrarian society, just imagine what would happen if you were to unplug your computer eventually it, without any additional power, the power that animates life, it dies out. And so that's what God has done 
with us in terms of our solution. Now, the thing that I find that most of us Christians uh, today, not, not most, but many of us Christians today, is we've learned to tell a story that goes like this. So God acted on the cross, and uh, and, and, and Jesus was, ex- was exalted on Easter Sunday. And someday, uh, at the end of time, we ourselves will experience resurrection. That may be the way you think of resurrection, but it's not at all the way that the Bible talks of resurrection. It certainly isn't the way that Paul understood a resurrection. And the key factor in that uh, is that uh, resurrection is not an expectation that merely comes at the end of time. Death, you see, is but a partial solution to the problem of our sin. We are called to create the good that God wills for us. We are the the stewards in the garden called to share in God's creativity. And the problem with the solution of death is that we actually do create good And the solution of death eradicates not just the evil that we create, but also the good that we create. And so there is no continuity for our evil because of God's solution of death. But so, too, there is no continuity of our good. If death were the only solution that God brought to the problem of sin, and that's where it comes, that's where we come to our story on Easter Sunday, our resurrection, not just Jesus's inauguration. Paul in his writings is very clear that Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom and there is new creation here and now. Yes, on the cross, you know, you know, uh, evil did not have the last word. The cross did not have the last word. Jesus's resurrection was was as something in the past, but Jesus is now therefore alive in our present and the Holy Spirit is now active in our lives, bringing about our resurrection here and now within the created order. Therefore, our prayer is is not uh, that God's will will be done sometime at the end of time. No, our prayer that the Jesus taught us is on earth as it is in heaven here now today. And Paul talks about this when he talks about, uh, you know, when he talks about our experience and our gift, our receiving the gift of the resurrection and it being inaugurated in our lives, when he uses phrases like in Christ and our ability to participate in Christ and other phrases like that, over 115, I think, uh, occurrences of this in his writings. And so one of those is from Second Corinthians. It's very familiar to us. Uh, so then if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation, the resurrected order. The old things have gone away, and look, new things have arised. See the daffodils blooming. See the new world emerging in each and every part of the God's new created world. And then in the letter to Galatians, this is the very end of, of Paul's letter to the people at Galatia. The world, our sinfulness, has been crucified. It's been executed. The world has been crucified to me through him, and I have been crucified to the world. And then he he says, being circumcised or not being circumcised doesn't mean anything. What matters is new creation. And that's how Paul concludes that letter. After death, the death of all the things, all the evil we do, uh, God has brought about a solution, which is this new creation. And so in Galatians, there's this beautiful passage, which talks about the meaning of your baptism. Each of you have been baptized. 
And Paul, in explaining what baptism means, says that all of you who are in Christ Jesus, which is to say to be baptized, by means of that faithfulness are sons and daughters of God. For you have been immersed, bathed into Christ, and you have been clothed with Christ. There's this white robe that you put on after baptism, provided by your community. Whatever your old clothes were, they have been destroyed. Your new clothes are the clothes of those who are called to bear witness to this this, uh, new creation. And therefore, uh, there is no longer these categories, these hierarchies of value. There's no Jew or pagan, slave or free, male and female. All of you are in Christ Jesus, one in the same, a beloved community. God loves you. And in Colossians, he says the same thing. You've been stripped off uh, of that old self. All those practices, those are no more. Uh, those things that have clothed you, uh, and you've been clothed now with a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. Once again, that that omega dea, that, that image of God that is in us has been restored. And in that renewal, in this resurrected state, There is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but only Christ is all and in all. And therefore, as God's chosen ones, as those who are newly clothed, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with the things that are uh, the characteristics of that full communion for which you were always created, compassion kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So resurrection, folks, and this is the good news, is God's solution. Not just God's solution to death, but God's solution to sin. And not just God's solution to sin after we die. God's solution to sin in your life here and now. And so, folks, we are invited to receive this gift on Easter, of Easter's eyes. They give us this new mind so that we will no longer have a divided mind and so that we finally can experience that peace which surpasses all understanding. That's what it's all about, this resurrection today. Our flesh has been executed on the cross. We have a new mind, and now we are called to act accordingly. And that brings us to the gospel text that we have today. Luther said that simultaneously we are sinner and saved. We are in between times. We we are living in resurrected times. It has been inaugurated, but it is not yet complete. And therefore, we are like the, uh, some of you I know, uh, have experienced addiction, addiction of various kinds. Uh, I have confessed to you my own addiction to caffeine. but we all have forms of addiction, and you have, and many of us have experienced forms of addiction in, in, in very tragic ways, whether it's drugs or alcohol or other substances or practices. And what you'd know about that is that uh, one of the things that AA we say is that, well, I am. 
I am an addict. It's something that uh, uh, we are able to retrospectively look back and see a moment when we were able to stop lying about ourselves. We were equipped. We were empowered to step away from the bottle. We were empowered to step away from whatever those practices were and begin to live in a new way, to be rehabilitated, to have our minds transformed by the renewing of our minds. And yet that process is not finished in us. We are still being rehabilitated. It's here and now, but so too are all those powers and principalities. We live in them and they they tempt us. And so too do we still have this heart that's not perfectly healed. So we can at any time fall off the wagon. And we know this, and this is truthful speaking. And uh, so we are still in the process, though we have, we live in this world of resurrection, we are still in the process of being rehabilitated from our addiction to sin. And that's why God has given us this reminder so that whenever we look throughout the world, whenever we gaze upon a daffodil, whenever we gaze upon all these beautiful uh, um, blooming Bradford pears that I've seen along the, the road, whenever we see acts of nobility, of loving kindness to each other, we remember that God is enabling us to see those because that is the new creation happening, giving us the wholeness that we seek. And that brings us to our gospel lesson today. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, dressed just like you and me, in other words, in the white robe of the martyr, of the right robe robe of one called to bear witness to this whole thing. He's sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's been raised. He's not here. Look, there's the place they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you. And where is he going? Not to Jerusalem, but where the whole story began in the Gospel of Mark. Back to the very beginning of the story, to Galilee, where he said, come, and I'll make you fishers of humans. And he says, go back to the beginning of the story, but now live as folks with Easter eyes. And that's what we're called to do today. And that's what we celebrate today, Lord. That's what we celebrate, brothers and sisters, that God is good. God is present. God has been victorious over death. God has been victorious over our sin. God is conquering all of these uh, tendencies in us towards sinfulness and broken communion and giving us the means to live in love with each other and to actually be that beloved community. God is good all the the time, all the time. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.